Welcome to the new gigs. Digs, digs, not gig, digs. Uh, we got in here Friday night and started setting up and realized in very short order that this is exactly what we're hoping for. So uh, it's going to be uh, a couple of weeks of trying to tweak this and making sure that it, you know, fits the way that we want it to. So stay tuned. I'm putting on my lab coat because we're going to do some experimenting. But anyway, I'm so glad. Yeah, there's some people in the crowd are like, uh-oh. There he goes again. That's okay. They're used to it. <laughs> Anyway, I am so glad that you all are here and enjoying uh, the new facilities with us um, and this weather. My goodness, this is awesome. Um, uh, next week is Mother's Day, and uh, I was yeah, and um, I was just talking to the hospitality team. I'm like, man, let's do something outside if, as long as the weather's good. That'd be great. So anyway, but it's Oklahoma, and Mother Nature needs a Prozac usually. So we'll see how that how that happens next week. Anyway. Um, last week, uh, in the, um, the other um, school that we were in, Pastor Tim uh, talked about the Emmaus Road, and uh, unfortunately, I wasn't here to hear that, although I'm going to listen to it as soon as the podcast is done, and uh, he's like, oh, no, he's going to do great. Uh, last week, I was at our church, our sister church in Bartlesville. Um, the pastor up there is a dear friend of mine, and he and his wife uh, needed some time off, and so he asked if I would uh, um, come and and share, and I've been up there a couple of different times, and so I bring you greetings from our brothers and sisters up in the Bartlesville area. Uh, they have been praying for Thrive Church, and we're so very, very thankful that they do that. Um, and I had a chance to talk to them about some things that we talk about a lot um, around here, but in, in their um, context, it's not something that they, um, they hear a lot of. And so I thought I would just share um, some of these things with you. Because we're in a new facility, we're in a new location, this is a great opportunity for us to kind of revisit some of the ideas um, about why we started Thrive in the first place. And so I'm going to um, kind of repackage that message for you, and, uh, and, and hopefully some of these things will really resonate inside all of us and, and frankly, inspire us to just continue you know, moving in the direction that we're moving. And what I did with, as I shared with them, um, a couple of different ideas related to the new realities of church, because um, church has changed. Uh, you know, I used to be, well, you know, church is different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, church is different than it was five years ago. I mean, things, things have changed and evolved very rapidly in our culture, and Part of the church today is to define what that reality is so that we can respond appropriately to it. And I shared a couple of ideas with, with, our, with our brothers and sisters up there. And the first one is this. Um, there was a study done a couple of years ago by the Pew Organization. It's a polling survey research uh, firm. And uh, they did a, a, a major study. I think they do it every 10 years, if I remember correctly. But basically, they were talking about church and spirituality in the United States, and it's a massive study. And one of the things that they noted was that there was a rise in the number of people who um, were leaving the church. And they actually, the, the number is so significant statistically that they, they gave it a title. They're people, they're called nuns. Not nuns like Mother Teresa nuns, okay? Not like that, okay? <laughs> you know, that's good. But they're called nuns, meaning that when they were given the survey, the question asked them what their religious affiliation was, and these are the people who mark the box none of the above. 
And there has been a significant statistical rise in that number of people. Let me break it down for you. Um, first of all, you have people in what's called the silent generation. These are people born between 1928 and 1945. 11% of those people mark none of the above. The next generation, boomers, 1946 to 1964, about 17% mark none of the above. And then Gen X, which is my generation, 1965 to 1980, about 23%. And that actually matches up with what, what I know. You know, I look at my group of friends, and that's probably a pretty accurate number. But here's the one that really has caused a lot of angst. <clears throat> Millennials, 1981 to 1996, 36% mark none of the above. And we know statistically that the millennial generation is the one that typically is is leaving the church. That is a big deal. That's an enormous, enormous number of folks. <clears throat> and something that's part of the new reality of doing, doing church. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons for this, and we can talk about those, but I just want to kind of, kind of look at the overall picture first. And this matches up with our own research as a church. We did, we did a considerable amount of research before we started this thing. And um, one of the things that we noticed is that we, we uh, picked a spot uh, over in Broken Arrow. We kind of you know, put a, uh, what do they call a pin in a, in a digital map. And we did a three-mile radius around it. There was approximately 60,000 people in that three-mile radius. And one of the things that we found um, in this particular study was that out of that 60,000 people, about a third, about a third, had some type of religious affiliation and were involved in church. Okay? Another third, another third, had uh, some type of religious affiliation but weren't involved in church hardly at all. And then the final third had no religious affiliation and no, no church involvement. Now I want you to think about that. You had roughly 40,000 people, two-thirds, roughly 40,000 people, who have no involvement in church, and Tulsa, Oklahoma is the buckle of the Bible Belt. That's a significant number. In fact, one of the things that we did, and, and uh, I forgot to bring it today, I was going to do it, but I took a big box of Fruit Loops, and I counted out 20,000, because 20,000 people in that radius um, had no type of religious background, no church involvement, nothing. 20,000. That's a lot of folks. That's our mission field, really. Uh, and one of the things that we, we discovered as we were kind of going through that is that there was a, a growing number of people um, who fit a new category. We used to talk about in, in, um, in church language, we used to talk about people who are unchurched and people who are churched. But there's a growing num of a number of people who are de-churched means that they left church for one reason or another. They are either burned by a church, they're burned out by a church. Um, church doesn't necessarily have the same kind of meaning that it once had, and there's a variety of reasons for it, but that number has been growing steadily for the last 10 or 15 years and probably impacts this number that we call the nuns. Does that make sense? So what we're seeing nationally, we're also seeing just in our, in our own environment too. And this is the church's new reality. The United States of America is the third largest mission field in the world. The third largest. Because of the number of um, unchurched, de-churched, or what we've been calling the nuns. 
It's important. So we're in this new location. It's a great opportunity for us to kind of revisit all of this. And I think one of the things that we've got to, to, to think about is the fact that <clears throat> every church has a choice. And the choice can be difficult because usually choices involve change. And I don't know about you, but I'm not so good with that, right? You know, change is hard. Change is difficult for us. And the, the choice really comes down to, are you going to look backward or are you going to look forward? Are you going to look backward <clears throat> and say, oh, I'm going to lament the fact of the good old days when everybody was a Christian. But thank you, Billy Joel, that... Um, the, the past isn't always good as it seems, right? <clears throat> the other um, thing that we can do is we can look at the future and, and ask the question, the difficult question, how might we respond to this new reality? How might we do this? And I want to be an optimistic realist. That, that's my goal in life. I want to be an optimist, but I also want to be a realist, an optimistic realist and deal with the reality that's in front of us. And so I want to suggest something today, a way to, to respond. And it's going to be, it's going to sound simple, but sometimes simple is the most difficult thing to do. And, and what I want to suggest is maybe, maybe we return to the gospel, to the good news. Well, I got quiet in here all of a sudden. It's like, wait a minute, where's the punchline? No, no, seriously, let's look at uh, this thing called the gospel. Let me tell you a little bit about it. The gospel, that word that we use, this idea of good news, comes from a Greek word. Here it is. Euangelion. Let me hear you say euangelion. Yes, major friends, you know Greek now. Fun at parties, right? Euangelion. That's the word that we get um, evangelism from, right? Telling people good news. It has a very interesting history, however. It was used in ancient Roman times, <clears throat> to describe official proclamations of Caesar. So, uh, today is Caesar's birthday. And so the proclamation was called Euangelion, good news. Caesar has defeated the barbarian hordes, or whatever it is, Euangelion. So an official proclamation that was made, either written uh, on some kind of a, a, a scroll, or as, a, as an announcement that was made in public squares, was called Euangelion. And the ancient Christians co-opted, they borrowed that term to describe the coming of Jesus. Isn't that cool? So good news meant something for people, but the Christians came along and said, no, let me really tell you what good news is. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves as a church at the very outset of all of this, the big question, is do we still believe that Jesus is good news? Do we believe that? And if we believe that, are we acting like that? That becomes the other issue. But how might we share this good news effectively with a very sarcastic and cynical culture? It's pretty sarcastic, pretty cynical. I was at a conference recently, and I heard something that captured some of these ideas for me, and I really want to share that with all of you. The preacher who is uh, talking asserted that the good news has, has two halves. Okay, now, now think about that. Good news has two halves to it. And he said the first half is John 3.16. The second half is 1 John 3.16, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about this. So here's John 3.16. Let's read this together. Okay, let's do it out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How many of you have heard this before? Yes, this is very common in the church, right? Of course, John 3.16. There's a couple of things that I want you to, to notice. First of all, is for God so loved the world. Boy, if that's not the start of good news, I don't know what is. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, it says that, that God created the world and when he was done creating, when he looked out upon it and he said, no, it wasn't just good, it was very good. You've heard me say this before, right? It was very good. And so sometimes we think that Jesus came only to save people. Well, that's true, but it's because God has a commitment to all of creation. He's here to save the entire world of which human beings are a part of it. For God so loved the world. <clears throat> and that is, I think, good news that God's got this commitment to his creation. And it says that he gave his one and only son. <clears throat> Again, the best that he could possibly give. Could he have accomplished his purpose with something else? Of course, he's God, but he didn't. He chose his own son to do it. Again, pretty good news for the rest of us. And here's the last part of it that I think is important. Whoever believes will have eternal life. I want to talk a little bit about this because sometimes I think when we, when we think about eternal life, uh, we automatically, our minds go to the fact that it's heaven, that it goes to someplace, something that happens when we die. But if we're looking at a real definition of eternity, eternity starts today, right now. And what I find over and over when I talk to people is that, yes, we believe in heaven. And yes, people are thankful for heaven. The problem is they still got to get up and go to work on Monday morning. And they still have to deal with the issues in their marriage or their issues in their job or their family or they're with their kids or whatever it happens to be. Eternity needs to start today not just something that happens when I die. Does that make sense? So eternity, yes. But the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about is for here and for now. What about, what about tomorrow? What about this afternoon? What about, and the list goes on and on. Which is why I think we must consider, as a body, we must consider the second half of the gospel. It's 1 John 3.16. Here it is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know, when we talk about the kingdom of God, the currency of the kingdom is love. It's caring for other people around us. That's the the hallmark, that's the characteristic of this thing called the, the kingdom. But I want to address something in here because I think this is, this is a fascinating. Um, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. To lay down. Now, the default definition when we talk about this is that when we lay down our life, it means that we're willing to die for someone else. Okay? Um, there used to be a TV show on called Night Court. Do you remember Night Court back in the 80s? Some of you remember this? Okay, Judge Harry Stone, kind of dressed like a, you know, like a 40s, you know, Rat Pack kind. And he had a bailiff, big tall brother with great hair. His name was Bull. Remember Bull? 
There was an episode, and I don't know why I remember this, but Bull was being interviewed about his boss, Harry Stone. And Bull made the comment, I would drink molten lava for that man. Fortunately, he's never asked me to do that. (laughs) So that was a great line. And so we talk about this idea of laying down our life for someone else. That's the idea. I'd take a bullet for them or whatever it happens to be. And that's true as far as it goes. It can mean that. But there's another aspect to consider here. Think about um, this this line in in Philippians. Let Let me put it up here. Paul is writing a letter to a group of Christians in the city called Philippi, and he says, in your relationships with one another, okay, in your relationships with each other inside the church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Interesting. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, he goes on to talk about death. But at the outset, he says, if you have the same mindset of Christ, it's one of being a servant to another person. Do you see that? It's very different. And so when we look at this idea of setting aside our life or laying down our life, it doesn't just mean to die. It can mean other things too. Think of it this way. It's like you're preparing dinner and you've got a cutting board and you're cutting up the vegetables and you take some of those vegetables and you put it in a bowl and you set it aside for later use while you cut up some more. This idea of setting aside is what lay down your life means. That's the aspect to it that's in that language. So there's a little, little bit of detail here. Setting aside my life. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, to set aside our life isn't just dying for them. Maybe it's as simple as just setting aside my schedule, my agenda, my plans for that day. That's love. I have a hard time with that. How about you? Because I plan out my day, and I know what needs to happen during the day. And I got a wife and kids, and they have other agendas besides mine. And then, and then I pastor a church, and the people in the church have other agendas too. I got a great staff. I love them to death. But they have other plans that are different than mine sometimes, and that's okay. But the point is, is that love means to set those aside, even for a period of time, in order to care for that person. Does that make sense? Nod your head so I know that. Yeah, okay. It's, it's a very important thing. And what I like about 1 John 3.16 is that it, it talks about something other than just belief. Because remember, John 3.16 is about belief. But 1 John 3.16 is about action. And so it moves us from belief to actual action, to actually do something with it. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that we've got to remember. If our love doesn't have action behind it, how on earth is anybody else going to know? How on earth is someone else outside of us going to understand who Jesus is or what this good news is all about? It's an important question that I think we all need to wrestle with, not only as a church, but as individuals. And today's culture, I'm just going to say it, the most effective way of communicating good news, are you ready for this? 
is you. It's you. You're the most effective way of communicating it. Now, <clears throat> church can do it, certainly. I mean, you know, we can truck a bunch of people in here and you know, I can talk at them. But the fact of the matter is, the most effective way to say, here's what good news is, is for you to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation and to demonstrate that love, love to them. I think it's important. And, and what I'm talking about here is not this idea of personal evangelism um, per se. How many of you remember uh, a number of years ago, the four spiritual laws and saying the sinner's prayer? Do you remember this? Yeah. Um, some people I know came to faith that way. The problem is, is that what we're finding is that that little track, that little Bible track, doesn't work anymore. And a lot of you have heard me tell this story, but <clears throat> there's a book that um, some of our small groups read, and uh, there's a pastor who tells this amazing story. He was sitting down with a guy that he had been working on a relationship with for a while, and they were having breakfast one day, and he actually laid out the four spiritual laws, the plan of salvation. And he asked the guy that he was talking to, he says, does this make sense to you? And he goes, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. And then he asked the question, the, the closing question, he said, would you like to accept Christ right now? And the guy said, no. And so he, he started at the beginning. He went through the whole thing a second time. Are you sure you understand this? Yeah, no, I totally get it. And, and he says, but, but do you want to do this? He says, no. He says, why not? And the young man that he had been creating this relationship with looked him square in the eye and says, I guess I just don't want to be like you. Ow! And, and what this pastor said was, it wasn't the, the, the impact of, it wasn't me personally, it wasn't a personal attack. It's just as if this is what Christianity means, then I'm not interested in that. And, and the point is, is that this idea of drive-by evangelism doesn't work because truth and faith, for most people these days, is highly relational. Think about it this way. If you are going to go buy, say, a new car, and you don't know what brand you want. Now, I grew up in Michigan, and so you were either Ford or you were GM. That's just the way it was where I grew up. And my daddy was a GM guy. So um, when I bought a Honda for the first time, my whole family looked at me with a jaundice eye. Like, you did what? Okay. But when you're going to buy something major, or, or think about a major appliance, you're going to make a big purchase. The, the, the one thing that you'll probably do is you'll check with someone else. You want to know what experience they had. And by the way, if you're going to ask me, don't ever buy a Samsung refrigerator. I'm just going to tell you that up front. I have bad experience with it, okay? I just told 12 of my friends, okay? So <laughs> the, point, the point is, is that we are a very relational type of decision-making people. We want to know what somebody else, else's experience is with something before we sign on that dotted line. Yeah, we want to experience ourselves, but hey, what do you think? And, th and that matters. And there are certain people, their opinion matters more than others. And, and that's, that's kind of how we are as, as people. Truth and faith are much more relational, especially among millennial generations especially among the, that, uh, that group that, you know, from 1980 to about 1996. That's just the recommendation that we want. And, and if we're just going to do drive-by evangelism, there's no relationship. You haven't earned a voice. 
But you also means collectively to demonstrate it as a church. Uh, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, in fact, Thrive has heard this quite a bit, it's this one, it's in John chapter 13. John, or Jesus says to his disciples before he leaves them, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. I, don't, I think we could preach on that every single Sunday from now until eternity and still only scratch the surface. This idea of just caring about one another. People need to witness the good news of the kingdom of God inside of you. And it, it's how you treat each other. It's how you treat the, the people around you. Uh, I, I've said this um, many times before, and um, uh, it just strikes me. I knew a guy, uh, worked a lawn mowing crew with a guy <clears throat> years ago. And on the weekends, he worked, uh, I think he worked at a local restaurant as a waiter. And he told me, worst time for tips, Sunday after church. Man, we got to turn that around. That's not right. R remember, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So please, be generous in your tips. And by, don't put a gospel track down for somebody. When John Wesley was training his pastors, one of the things that he said, and I'll never forget this, I read this a few years ago, that when his pastors would go and visit somebody in, in the congregation, they had to ask a couple of questions. First of all, do you have enough food? Do you have enough firewood for the winter? And only after they had asked those questions and met those needs were they allowed to ask, how's your soul? Because people cannot hear good news over the din of empty, empty bellies. That's just the reality that we face. Don't just tell me it, show me it. In that sense, we're all from Missouri, I guess. Show me. So people, how we treat each other, how we treat the people around, around us, the waiter, the waitress, the checkout clerk at the grocery store, and, and also how you make room for others in your life. How are you making room for other people in your life? You know what? That's hard because you've got to set aside your agenda. That's what we're starving for, is that kind of connection with other people, I think. When Jesus called his first disciples, <clears throat> one of the things he told them, um, he, he picked Andrew and Peter, James and John. And do you know what their profession was? Do you, anybody know? Fishermen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Peter, James and John in the sailboat, right? People are looking at me like, Miss K, you don't know that one? Really? No, she doesn't know that one. Okay, Wow. I feel like I've gone to a new level now that I've, <laughs> I learned that one at VBS. Anyway, uh, but, but they were fishermen, right? And, and what Jesus did is he said, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of what? Men, exactly. But here's the interesting thing about ancient fishermen. They did not use a rod and a reel. They used nets. Why? Because you get more fish that way, right? And so when he talked about making fishers of men, 
he was talking about gathering large groups of them. That was a metaphor that they would understand. And the church is like that. Because in a net, um, if you look, you've got hundreds of these strands and knots. And that's exactly what the church is, is. We are a group of strands and knots of relationships with one another. We often talk about network of relationship. What's the root word? Net, right? We have this network of relationships with one another. And others can experience that by watching how we are connected to each other. And that network of relationships is arresting because they love each other and maybe I want to be a part of that. Because where else are people going to get it? TV? No. I don't know, maybe playing softball together or a bowling league? I don't know. But the point is, is that it ought to be an arresting type of, of net uh, for people. And so we talk about this idea of good news that has to be demonstrated so that people can see it, that they can experience it for, for, their, for themselves. And so, so we, we talk about the two halves of the gospel. If John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, if one is the first half, the other is the second half. John 3.16 is the seed. 1 John 3.16 is the fruit. If one is forgiveness, the other is freedom. If one is faith, the other is fullness. If one is changed lives, then the other is a changed world. And here's the, here's the big takeaway. Here's the thing I want you to remember more than anything else. If you walk out of here and don't remember a thing that I said, remember this. The world will awaken to the first half of the gospel when the church awakens to the second half of the gospel. Ugh. People will only understand John 3.16 when the church understands 1 John 3.16. And my experience is that people are starving. They're starving for this type of good news. It's not just about a, a place to go when we die, but life that you live when you're not alone. It's about love and value and contribution and, and hope for the day ahead, not for someday unforeseen in the future. Mm. A couple weeks ago, I had a really unique experience. Had somebody who talked to me um, after a service and said, "You know what? I really appreciate the fact that you don't use religion as a weapon." He says, "I don't know if I'll ever be back, but I want you to know that I'm going to think about what you said." And I thought, "That's why I got into this." You know, logistics and great equipment and you know, a new facility and whatnot. Yeah, it's all fun. But when somebody comes and says, I needed to hear that, that's why we do this. That's the thing that motivates us, it's this idea of love. And I have to admit, when I was talking to this guy, my heart broke for that individual because apparently at one point somebody had used religion as a weapon. And my heart broke for the church because that's what we're about? Are you kidding? I don't want that. That's not what we want for the church. Mm. People want to experience good news. Think about you and your journey when you finally heard about good news. 
How'd you feel? Other people feel that same way. So new location, new opportunity. Quit going to church. Be the church. Be good news to someone else. And for God's sake, start.